Hello, my friends. This is the podcast that brings a wealth of knowledge, expertise, and fun of Twins Smoke Shop, New England's premier smoke shop, right to you, wherever you are, whenever you want it. And that's Not Just Blowing Smoke. You can find us at our website, notjustblowingsmoke.com, and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Not Just Blowing Smoke. All right, everybody, how y'all doing? This is a very special episode of Not Just Blowing Smoke, and today we have my co-hosts, Paul and Dave. Nick is off tonight, and we have Scott Cubes Keller with us tonight. (laughs) Keller, P.I. We're very glad you're here with us, man. Glad to be here. It's nice to have you here. Thank you. Now, uh, before we get into things tonight, I want to introduce the cigar that we are going to be smoking, and that is the Diamond Crown Maximus Toro Number no. 4. It features an Ecuadorian Lajero Oscuro sun-grown wrapper. It is Dominican binder, Dominican filler. It's a classic Toro, 6x50. It is a wonderful cigar, and Paul, you were saying that the the wrapper is actually made, grown by the Oliva family. Yes, and that actually, we can maybe just talk about it right now, the, yeah, the sure. word of the evening. Oh, sure. The Tobacconist University word of the evening tonight is sun-grown. Sun-grown? What does that mean? Sun-grown is uh, tobacco that has gr- it grows in direct sunlight. Um, <laughs> Doesn't all tobacco grow in direct sunlight, Paul? <laughs> Not all of them. <laughs> So this this particular leaf, uh, that intense process of of uh, growing in the direct sunlight, uh, creates a more robust, um, flavorful tobacco uh, leaf. But it also, if you notice on this cigar, it has very pronounced veins. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yep. So that's very much a signature of the sun-grown wrapper. Okay. Very good. And uh, this cigar came out around 2003 mm-hmm. and uh, originally was only available on the West Coast. And uh, way back then, uh, Opus X was something that came out only on the East Coast. And Diamond Crown Maximus came out on the West Coast. So this was like considered mm. the Opus of the West Coast when this started. Wow. And um, the uh, J.C. Newman has an arrangement with uh, a Toro Fuente. So the, the, the wrapper here is grown by Oliva. Mm-hmm. The binder and filler is Fuente-grown tobacco, Correct. and it's put together by J.C. Newman. So you've yeah. got three companies, three big companies that have come together to produce the cigar, and it is a fantastic thing. And, uh, Paul, you want to talk about what we're pairing with this tonight? Well, tonight we're actually it's the first time <laughs> in not just blowing smoke history that we are not drinking anything alcoholic. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> we are all drinking coffee. Uh, mm-hmm. We're drinking three different types. Dave, oh, actually, let me start with our guest here, uh, Cubes Keller. Uh, Scotty and myself are drinking the half caffeinato. Uh, mm-hmm. from Nespresso. You are drinking the Intenso. Yep. And Dave is drinking plain old decaf. Plain old decaf. <laughs> or the producer. We don't want him jittery or anything. That's right. We want his hands very steady. <laughs> All right. So there you go. That's that's uh, what we're smoking, what we're drinking. 
and um what's the first impressions of the you know to uh, coffee goes great with cigars oh yes and tobacco in general and uh, i think coffee's going to go very well with this oh yes paul what's your first impressions of the of the coffee and the uh Maximus Toro. Well, you know how much I love my coffee with my mm -hmm. cigars, and mm. uh, this is no different. This uh, cigar, and I've only smoked the Maximus a couple of times before tonight, um, so I, I get out of this a lot of cedar, mm. earth, uh, some fruit notes, a little bit of chocolate, too. Yeah. What? And I think mm -hmm. the coffee is helping to intensify that flavor as well. Mm -hmm. uh, nice, nice, uh, rich spice on the retrohale. Yep. Um, very, very smooth. Uh, I think Diamond Crowns just have that wonderful, smooth flavor. Uh, it doesn't make a difference what Diamond Crown you're smoking, whether it's uh, the actual Diamond Crown or the Julius Caesar, the Maximus. They're all very, very smooth. But, yeah, a lot of cedar, uh, earthy tones, but that chocolate note with the coffee is very, very pronounced for me. How about you, Dave? Uh, I'm going to mimic everything Paul said except for the fruit part. Okay. Well, I don't get that. But, uh, yeah, very cedary, um, earthy. <clears throat> um little woody um the retro hail is um incredible 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 <laughs> so. it's a good thing we didn't give him caffeine right. yeah. <laughs> and uh mr kella mr yes, kella what do you think this is one of your favorite cigars it is right yes i do get some um some cedar flavor mm -hmm. especially on the retro but i do taste some of that fruitiness that uh Paul is talking about. It's mm. super smooth, a little bit of earthiness, but not overpowering. It's just, um, it's my favorite by Diamond Crown. And it's probably no surprise that it's the Opus X of the West Coast because Opus X is my, one of my favorite cigars. And yes, it this, is. It does uh, mimic it in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Your your nickname could be Opie. <laughs> <laughs> it is in some circles. It is in some circles. Yeah. <laughs> Opie cubes. <laughs> so yeah. let's let's get into this. I know a lot of people are wanting to get into the uh, the whole you know true crime uh, part of the show here. You know, now Scott uh, is a retired private investigator. How long were you in that that uh, business for? Just short of twenty five years. Just short of twenty five years, yeah. and. Um, what what made you want to get into private investigation in the first place? Well, I never really thought about it. Um, a buddy of mine <laughs> just started doing it for yeah, people. I was a, yeah. You're just nosy, aren't you? <laughs> just nosy, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, a good friend of mine I grew up with, um, a couple houses down from me, is was a uh, prosecutor out in L.A., and one of his friends, uh, a female, her husband was a PI, mm -hmm. and he got to know him and what he did for work. And he was out there for a long time until his life was threatened by some of the gangs that they were prosecuting. Mm. Came back to Massachusetts, became a defense lawyer, started using a private investigator here, <clears throat> and tried to get me into it. And um, he said, you know, he thought I'd be good at talking to people, and basically that's what you need to be able to do is talk to strangers. Right. Um, elicit information from them. And um, so one Friday, I was working as a machinist at the time for 11 years. One Friday. One Friday, yep. I'll never forget it. <laughs> um, he said, well, why don't you try it? So I took a day off of work as a machinist, 
and this guy he put me in touch with this other private investigator and um he said uh, go out and just go to this house and verify that this is a um true address for this witness that he was looking for he said don't talk to him just verify that he was there and this is prior to the internet and all the sure. uh tools that we have as private investigators that are disposal nowadays mm. and so i did that and i was nervous as heck i was in mm. somerville i went and uh checked out the address and thought it was pretty cool you know it was kind of exciting and the following thursday i got laid off mm. so i went right into it i mm. started uh doing some you know started training for this uh investigator and i worked for him for four years and and uh which is required you have to have at least three years in massachusetts anyway um uh, working for another training for another investigator and once i had enough underneath my belt i went out on my own and started my own business so what do you need to you you, you have to have three years in, in at least in massachusetts of being under somebody but what yeah. do you get a license do, is there some kind of test you need to take what, what do you need to do to become a, yeah. a pi at some states you have to they require uh, a written exam but not in massachusetts you just have to uh, do the training and then mm -hmm. you have to interview with the uh, lieutenant colonel of the mass state police and they do a background check and all that um, and if he sees fit then they hand you your license you have to answer a lot of you know background questions sure and um and that's it so pay the fee <laughs> yeah that's right yeah. yeah yeah it sounds just like massachusetts yeah. no there's no written exam there's just a fee yeah, pay just it. give us some money <laughs> yeah um so what kind of what kind of work did you do as a private investigator what what kind of so, things did you do well um when i worked for the other gentleman for those years i did a lot of a lot of different types of work mainly criminal defense investigation okay um some surveillance like on divorce cases and and other other investigations of businesses business owners mm -hmm. things like that i can't mention the names but um some pretty well-known uh corporation ceos that uh I did some work on um, so you know it, basically what it is is you know when the criminal defense work is um, going out and locating witnesses mm -hmm. and interviewing them to try to help understand the situation that the defendant is in and you try to help defend him him or her as best as possible hey Dave can you move the camera up a little bit your Heads covered by the live mm. thing there. All right. It is. Yes, it is. Um, what kind of cases interested you the most, Scott? What were the things that you really looked for that you liked to do? I, I really. Divorce um, cases? No. <laughs> <laughs> divorce. Spying on the wives, yeah. The divorce cases were the worst, mm. and it was mostly spying on the husband. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the mo I, I found most interesting it was the criminal defense work it was really uh every day something different you know there's no, no two days were ever alike and if i was still doing it, i'm sure they, they wouldn't get two days the same mm. and so you, you you get a case <clears throat> yep. you start out with the attorney mm -hmm. 
talking with the attorney that hires me and uh would hire me i should say and um they go over what you know they, they think they need to get and they ask me for my opinion of, of what i need to do and basically I, i'm on my own mm -hmm. um from that point and report back to the attorneys um you know you read police reports if they're indicted you read grand jury minutes um you know, local police reports, state police reports. Um, and over time, I basically specialized in homicide investigation. Oh. And I found that the most interesting of all. Okay. How it's kind of macabre, but, mm. you know, that's, that's what I like. It's money. Yeah, we did get paid a little bit more money for homicide investigation. Yeah. What, what kind of case did you, what kind of cases did you, like, avoid? There's got to be things that you just said, uh, no, go talk to so-and-so yeah, about that. Yeah, I, I passed on a lot of different cases um, to other people. I, I did not like surveillance, and mm. especially on divorce cases, because you, you basically, if once they hire or they call me, would call me to hire me, they already knew what was going on. They just mm. wanted closure. Okay. And after finding out, you know, what they suspected and having to give them the news was difficult. I mean, it was like a home run, you know, I've got what I needed, mm -hmm. what she wanted, or he, but mostly it was women that, uh, wives or girlfriends that hired us. Um, then you got to give them the bad news. Right. And that's, or the good news, depending mm -hmm. on which way. And, uh, that was very, um, emotional and, yeah. and I didn't like it. Mm. So, after I built my business and was able to pick and choose, maybe after 10 years, mm -hmm. I subletted all that to other attorneys. I mean, other investigators. Sure. <clears throat> Did they still work kind of under you? Did you get, no. But you no. just would say, go, go to so-and-so. Yeah, here's, here's another investigator. He can help you. And Yeah. Okay. So, cool. Yeah. Can yeah. you tell us about uh, one or two of your most memorable cases? Uh, as the, in the divorce world, you mean? no, in in whatever whatever cases you want to talk oh, about. Well, I have there's quite a few. Well, it's quite a few. Um, one that everybody might know and um, is the Aaron Hernandez case. Mm -hmm. I worked for the attorneys uh, that uh, represented Aaron. I was on vacation down in uh, the Caribbean and got a text message. Uh, when we got down there, like two days after getting down there from the law firm asking me when I was going to be back, they're representing Aaron Hernandez. Mm. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> and I, of course, knew about, you know, the case at that time. Sure. So that was um, very eye-opening. What was eye-opening about it? Well, you know, how a professional football player of his stature um, – Married to a beautiful woman, had a uh, beautiful, beautiful child, mm -hmm. could get caught up in something like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, he was, to my surprise, he was heavily involved in smoking marijuana and uh, made him very paranoid and, um, you know, just the, just the outcome of the, his two cases we represented him on the first case, mm -hmm. which he was found guilty on. Um, 
of the of the one person. Oh, oh, uh, oh, uh, what's his name? Odin Lloyd. Mm. Yeah. Um, the other the other uh, homicide case that he was involved in. There were two two uh, victims in that case, but I did not work on that. Mm. <clears throat> so that was. Uh, you yeah, know, that was very, very high profile. Very, very high high profile. I remember being at Aaron's house. We had right. a, we had a lot to do at his house because it was a, he had video cameras and we had to mm -hmm. do a lot of investigation in his house and around his house and meeting his uh, girlfriend, wife, um, seeing his beautiful home and all his memorabilia of all the, his awards that he made in a, in his man cave. Mm. And just and he obviously was not there because he was in prison. <laughs> and then you know talking with him seemed like a very normal, good guy. Yeah. And it's just kind of shocking the way uh, his life turned. Yeah. You know, being one of the best tight ends to ever to play the game, mm. it's behind bars. Yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, so that uh, that was very memorable. Yeah. That's one of them. What's another one? That's another one. Another uh, one. Well, we represented Stephen Fleming, uh, mm. Whitey Bulger's right-hand man, and uh, that was very memorable. Uh, <laughs> the amount of discovery, discovery now is like all the information that's gathered by the prosecutor, whether it be, you know, district attorney, attorney general, the federal uh, attorneys. Mm -hmm. um, it could fill half this room, mm. the amount of information they had with wiretaps, um, grand jury minutes, police reports, going back years and years. And we had to uh, sift through that. I was hired by the Federal Defender's Office in Boston mm -hmm. as an outside vendor. And um, we had, a, a, I had another investigator working for me and then we had um other investigators that were doing mitigation um investigation and so that really uh that was quite labor intensive and you know going into some of these places and in, in uh south boston you know predominantly irish there was a lot of irish folks that we had to interview and um it was a little bit scary at times. Did you ever carry but a gun? I'd never carried a gun. You never carried. So you were yeah. like the Colombo of the. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, it, it's funny. Were you smoking cigars back then? <laughs> no, it was not. <laughs> mm. But um, you know, the thing that struck me most about the Fleming case was meeting him. Mm -hmm. We're in cell block, uh, cell block floor uh, four, and. Um, down a Walpole, and he came in. I was sitting there with the attorney. It's right. cold, cold um, brick, uh, cinder block building, mm -hmm. cold as could be. And um, we're sitting there waiting for him to arrive, and I could hear the change coming, you know. And he came with four guys. Four guys led him to the cell. They let him in, and then... He turned around, they uncuffed him from behind, uncuffed his feet and everything, mm -hmm. and sat down across the table from me, and uh, we started chatting, and um, I'm just thinking, wow, here's a guy that, you know, was accused of murdering 
countless people. Mm -hmm. And he seemed like a regular guy, a regular grandfather. That's how I picture him still. And, um, you know, that was <clears throat> a very memorable moment. I, I it sat with him a couple of, two or three times about different investigations that we were doing at the time. Mm -hmm. But, um, and then he ended up uh, turning state's evidence, if, if you will, and um, then it all ended. Right. Uh, but it wasn't uh, until after I did copious amounts of investigation. Mm -hmm. So that was quite memorable. So you, you know, you've had some really intensive cases mm -hmm. with some very high-profile people, mm -hmm. and um, you know, there's a lot of stress involved with that. Mm -hmm. What what kept you going? What what kept you going through all that? Well, you know, um, at the outset, it was you know just getting my business going. I want to keep going one case after another after mm -hmm. another. One time, I had over 100 cases between myself and one other employee. Jeez. And, and including, like, I always had at least 10 murder cases going at the same time. Mm. And, um, but then after time, I started seeing some of the uh, corruption, if you will, see trial number four. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that bothered me. Mm. Bothered me a lot. Still bothers me that these guys that have a lot of power out there and they go into some of the uh, low-income houses, uh, housing areas, and just, uh, you know, have their way with some of these uh, defendants. Mm. Um, and seeing lies in some police reports, like, wow, just blatant. We know that this is wrong. Just see, you, you know, so I wanted to get to the bottom of it, kept one case after another, wanted to get make sure that the defendant was getting a fair trial. Yeah. And, um, you know, so that was, that's what kept me going was these guys, these kids, you know, indigent, meaning they have no money mm -hmm. to help defend them. The court will appoint an attorney and along that becomes, uh, comes, uh, and, uh, experts. And mm -hmm. we're basically considered experts in our field. And, um, so they would get money allowed from me. And, uh, but, you know, they needed it. They needed, you know, everyone deserves the right to be defended, right. whether you can afford it or not. And some of these indigent, you know, people, you know, really need the help because they got nobody behind them. Mm. And a lot of them don't have, you know, they come from broken homes and mm -hmm. people don't have the money to, to hire a good investigator or a good attorney. And I did a lot of work for public defender's office federal and state which you know, loaded with very good lawyers a lot of people think public defenders stink mm -hmm. but they you know they, every now and then you get one that's inexperienced but i worked for some of the best attorneys uh started out as public defenders mm. and one of my well few probably three or four who i did work for graduated from being a public defender mm. to becoming judges mm. so you, you don't that doesn't happen by accident it's a lot of right. hard work and yeah um now you've since retired yeah you've been and for those of you who may be wondering where's this trial four stuff coming i'm just one well <laughs> that's the second half of the show people you gotta have you gotta <laughs> leave that tease
tease. We've got to keep you here for the second half of the show. We're going to talk a lot about trial four in the second half. But mm-hmm. um, you, how long have you been retired now? Uh, it'll be six years this uh, spring. And what have you been doing in your retirement? Well, so I'm working part-time at Twins. Been doing that for a couple of years. <laughs> uh, well, I took a year off, and um, now I'm back. Mm-hmm. Um, so that fills my time. I, we have a uh, cottage in Hampton, New Hampshire. I spend a lot of time up there. Yes, you do. Doing mm-hmm. repairs, enjoying the enjoying yes, the do. beach. I enjoy the beach immensely. Mm-hmm. My wife and I and kids. Sounds so stressful. <laughs> <laughs> I needed it after 25 years in the business. Right. I really did. Sounds it, like it. You know, it, it took a it took a lot out of me and. Um, so you know, and I I do some golfing in the in the, mm-hmm. in the uh, summertime. Now, what are what are you most proud of doing as a as a as you look back yeah. on your career? <clears throat> what's what's the things that you were most proud of as a PI? Well, pretty much all of it, because I was fighting for justice. Um, but if you were talking about cases, um, this is a case called. Uh, Massachusetts versus Sean Drumgold, mm-hmm. and through my investigation and hard work from the attorney, we ended up getting him out of prison after 15 years, showing police corruption. Mm. So that was a you know a lot of investigators work a lot longer than 25 years and don't get you know people out of prison for a murder that they didn't commit. Mm. Um, so that was one that was very labor intensive, more mm. so than the next one I'm going to mention, which is Sean Ellis case we got him out of prison after 22 years yeah after a lot of hard work from the attorneys and uh and myself uh, find, showing a lot of police corruption there too wow so those two stand out the most those are like because, the crown jewels yeah exactly yeah. yeah um what do you miss about it or do you at all you ever yeah. think to yourself you know maybe i'll go uh, maybe yeah I'll... well yeah um I miss maybe meeting <laughs> baby <laughs> chuckle uh, you know t- talking with different people every day mm-hmm. I'm a kind of social person and yeah. I, and I like interacting with other people and you know everyone thinks that uh because you know you work in crime that you know pe- there aren't good people out there but mm-hmm. there are a lot of good people out there um you know that uh you know basically weren't born with a silver spoon in their mouth (laughs) and uh you know they had it rough and they have it rough and you know letting them know that somebody's there to help you Mm. uh, i I took a lot of pride in that and letting them know that we're on their side um yeah that that that, uh i miss that Mm. that part of it um i don't miss going into all the bad areas that i used to go into yeah 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 you know, you know, always, you know, you have to be always aware of your surroundings. Like going into a bad area, I was trained never, if you're on a dead end, never park towards the dead end. Always mm. park heading out in case you have to get out in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And there was a few times that I, you know, wanted to get out in a hurry. <laughs> um, so I don't miss that part of it. No. Um, and, you know, just this distress because it, you you don't want to take your job home, but that that work 
was with you 24 hours a day. Mm. Oftentimes I'd wake up at, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning and think, oh, that's what I have to do. I got to talk to this person, do that, you know, and the next thing you know, you're not getting a good night's sleep. And yeah, uh, that happened for a long time. So I don't miss that either. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about cigars. Mm. How did you get into cigar smoking? Well, that's a funny story. Um, my son um, went to a private school, and mm -hmm. upon his graduation, um, we were seated next to one of his friends who was from Mexico, mm -hmm. and his uh, dad ran the largest oil company in Mexico. And um, my son was uh, a proctor in the, in the dorm and uh, befriended his son and treated him really well. And he goes, oh, you're Colby's dad. You're Colby's dad. And he goes, oh, I got something for you. And he reached in his bag, took out a Cuban Monte Cristo mm -hmm. and gave it to me. And I hadn't smoked cigars in, you know, I don't know, 20 years maybe or more. And uh, when I had that, I remember sitting at the beach. I was having it at the beach, like, "Wow, this is what cigars taste like nowadays." <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't like the. Uh, uh, I forget the cigars I used to smoke. Uh, Gasha Vega. Mm. It wasn't like a Gasha Vega. So, at that point, I. That's how I started smoking again. And it's been. It's now turned into a. Fair a obsession. Yeah. 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 I find that I. I the reason why I like them so much is it helps relax me. Yep. You know? Yeah, me and, too. It's and, aromatherapy. And I didn't start smoking cigars until after I retired. Mm. And I, you know, and I, because of what my career did to me mentally, I needed an escape and uh, not an escape, but something to help me uh, relax. And, and that's what I found. And de-stress and stuff like that. Right, sure. yeah. What are some of your favorite cigars, Scott? Huh? Well, the Diamond Crown is um, one of my favorite uh, companies. I love all their cigars. 724, I, I, I love every, every one of their cigars. Kurt, thanks you. Mm. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> hey, no. <laughs> um, and I, uh, I really enjoy Opus X. Anything by Arturo Fuente, I love. Mm hmm. Um, I'm partial to Dominican uh, Dominican uh, tobacco. Yeah. Although I do enjoy Nicaraguan and, and uh, Honduran tobaccos. Yeah, you do kind of go all over the place, but you seem to home in on the Dominican. Yeah. my I, I'd say my favorite is Dominican, and then the next is probably Honduran. Mm. I really like the CLE pro product, the Aladino. Mm-hmm. CLE. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those Aladino. are two great companies. Yeah. Same family. Yeah brothers right brothers yeah yep same plant yeah same, same plant plant well the same, same farm 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, tobacco you know it's it's all one plant yes. <laughs> 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 well, that wasn't the plant i was the poor, didn't, poor dave it was, the, it was the seed i was planting <laughs> uh -huh. i see what you did there dave <laughs> um now one of the things we do on the show is is Pastor Padron, Cigar Confessions. Oh. And that's usually something where I talk about some kind of pet peeve that I have or or some kind of thing where I, I you know, say, you know, try and help people to do or avoid in order to 
get the most out of their cigar smoking experience. Um, you've been a tobacconist with us for a while, you know, and so I, I want to ask you that question. What is one of your cigar smoking pet peeves? Hmm. When people cut the cap off the cigar. Yeah. Half the, like the cap is gone. I hate to see someone cut a cigar and ruin it. Uh, so they cut too much. When too they much. Cut, when they cut too much off, when they behead it. When beheaded it, yeah. Behead it instead of just kind of moil their way through exactly. life. Yes. That a little is, snippy, snippy. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of our favorites, too. Yes. Yep. Is it? it yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it is, it is highly talked about on the show uh, about just how bad some of these customers are when they cut their cigars. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's always frustrating when you see somebody... And I've seen them do it with like a, you know, Byron's, you know, the thirty plus dollar cigar. Yeah. They take it and they're talking about how great it is and how awesome, you know, cigars are, and then they lob off the first inch of the cigar <laughs> and I audibly gasp. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what ten dollars right there. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, just that little bit. What's what is it you like to say, Paul? Less is more. Less is, Less is more. more. Less is more. That's right. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So um, what's our final thoughts here on the uh, Diamond Crown Maximus Toro number mm. four? Dave, what do, you, what do you think? How did it go with your coffee? Um, how did it perform for you? Uh, performed wonder wonderfully. <laughs> uh, it went, I like uh, the pairing between the, uh, the coffee. It really brought out uh, the cedar for me. Mm. Uh, still not getting any fruit, so, uh, but, yeah, no, I'm in, I'm enjoying it very nicely. Maybe you need to eat fruit to know what it should taste like. <laughs> <laughs> I love my. The combos fruit. don't count. Don't, don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason why I'm good with apple pies. I love. <laughs> Scott, what about you? How do you like oh, the cigar and the uh, pairing here? So I'm getting a, a lot more earthiness as the more I smoke it, mm. um, but it's again super smooth, and it goes great with the coffee. I'm I'm I used to be a big coffee drinker, and I don't drink it that often. Mm -hmm. But this is a perfect perfect pairing. Yeah, I've uh, I'll do it again. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I still I'm still getting the the uh, floral um, flavor, and um, just super. It's a great smooth, full. Medium to full, mm -hmm. probably medium plus. Yeah, cigar. A lot of people shy away from um, a cigar like this because because they think it's too strong. But this is nowhere not not for profile for me. Uh, Heather, one of our um, watchers, is saying we should say something about the band here, and uh, that is one of the things that's gorgeous about the cigar is mm -hmm. this very ornate. Mm -hmm. um, gold band that says Diamond Crown Maximus on it. It is very, very pretty. And it's a wonderful, wonderful band on the mm -hmm. cigar. Everything about this cigar is perfect. You know, the draw is perfect. The mm -hmm. burn is perfect. The ash, there's, you know, there's no flakiness or anything to it. The construction has been great. The performance has been great. I mean, for me, earthy cocoa coffee notes mm -hmm. that little bit of cedar you know in the background for me those are the things i get from this and coffee is one of the best pairings for this cigar yes it just it just bring it, it's such a great complimentary uh uh set of uh, flavors you know uh, 
So that's my take on it. Paul, you want to? And preferably black coffee. Yes. If you're going to hide it between extra, extra cream and sugar, <laughs> don't even bother. Yeah, well, that <laughs> you're would, not, you're not going to get the flavors out of the that cigar. Would totally, that would totally change things. It, oh, really, yeah, it really is. This, is. this goes good with a black coffee. Black coffee. doesn't matter if it's decaf, half decaf, or a full-blown calf. It's, yeah. it's just a... I mean, I could see putting a little bit of sweetener in it and having it work, but... But I think straight black coffee is what works best. Well, one of the things I like about this cigar, too, is that in the beginning I was getting a lot of the uh, earthy, cedar, fruity, little bit of, of uh, chocolate. But now the cedar notes are pronounced for me. Mm. It's becoming a lot more uh, intense on, the, on, the, on that note. Uh, earthy, too. And again, the coffee, I think, is helping to bring that out. So the second third of the, sorry, the second half of the cigar. Second <laughs> third of the cigar, excuse me, is uh, changed for me a little bit, but cedar notes are are pick, um, I'm noticing more and more now. Very good. I love it. I'm on the final third of my cigar. Not Seems even like halfway I'm, through. Yeah, I'm, I'm like I'm it. like the the, the, the quickie, uh, the quick smoker in this go round. I, I really really enjoy it. Great cigar. It's totally worth it. If you have not smoked one of these, you need to. It's a great great cigar, and. Um, um, one of those cigars that I'd love to see, you know, more people getting when they come to Twins. It's mm. a great, great stick. Um, we're going to take a break right now. We're break, going break. to refill the coffee mugs, and we're going to come back with a review of 10 Russians and more talk with Scott Keller, PI, and we're going to get into trial four and his part in that and where that's going right now, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after these messages all right everybody we're back and we are now looking at captain earl's 10 russians and uh if you look on the tin it says 10 russians is a true delight for lovers of latakia rich and full-bodied 10 russians is pressed to deliver a perfectly balanced blend to the true aficionado of full English tobaccos, inspired by the true story of Captain Earl's rescue of 10 Russians marooned in a sampan in the Sea of Japan. That is what's on the uh, tin here. And a little bit of history on um, uh, uh, Hermit Tobacco Works, who uh, makes this tobacco. Uh, that was... Uh, a company started by Jane Louise Jones, who were, according to smokingpipes.com, avid smokers, collectors, and founders of Hermit Tobacco Works. And they started, uh, this whole thing was built around a pipe that was originally owned by Captain Earl himself and are responsible for creating some exceptional pipe tobaccos. Although Jay passed back in 2011, Louise, his uh, widow, continues the tradition of Hermit Tobacco Works and alongside with the Master Blenders at Cornell and Deal, still produces the Captain Earl's line named for the master of the Charles W. Morgan, the last wooden whaling ship, which is currently docked in Mystic, Connecticut. This is uh, manufactured now by Cornell and Deal English Blend. Uh, it is a blend of Cavendish, Latakia, Turkish Orientals, and Virginia. No flavoring. There is a crumble cake in here. And um, we have a little video here where I will uh, show you what's in the tin and how to prepare some crumble cake tobacco. All right. I've got my tin of... Captain Earl's 10 Russians right here and thought I would use this opportunity to teach a little bit about 
crumble cakes because that's what's inside. You open up your tin of 10 Russians and you get this big, thick brownie of tobacco that has all been pressed together. But it's not so pressed and so hard that you need a knife to cut this. That's the difference between a traditional club and crumble cake. And oh, it smells so good. Very vinegary, woody, earthy. It's good stuff. Don't bite it. No, no. You eat this stuff and you'll probably die. <laughs> so let me show you how this works. It's real easy if you've never done one of these before. And you can, this is how you prepare any kind of crumble cake that there is out there. But uh, it's literally what it says. The cake literally falls apart. You just crumble a little bit off. It comes off real easy off the cake there. I'll put that back in the tin. And then as I just gently start to rub this out, it very easily flakes out into these very small shag-like uh, cuts of tobacco there. You can see how fine that tobacco is. And the moisture content is really, really good. It's not really too wet. Um, it's pretty much ready to go into your pipe at that point. And I like to just kind of crumble off what will fit into my pipe Sometimes I get a little bit more, sometimes I get a little bit less, but um, I like to do it a bowl at a time, but you can actually crumble the whole thing, put it back into the tin, put it into a mason jar, whatever you like to do with your tobacco that way. But this stuff is ready to go. Let's smoke it. And smoke it we shall. And uh, we're continuing our coffee kick here with the tobacco. Paul, what are your first thoughts on the pairing here? Well, I got to say this. <clears throat> this tobacco is fantastic. Mm. Um, getting a lot of smoky, woody, earthy, mm -hmm. a, some sweetness out of it, mm -hmm. leather notes as well, but incredibly well balanced. Yeah. Um, I think the coffee is actually helping to bring out um, a lot more of the believe it or not a little bit more of the sweetness and mm -hmm. and uh smokiness too um but when we talked about this being you know a lot of here and, and when i first heard about 10 russians from you guys and how you know because it has a lot of vitamin <laughs> n in it <laughs> that's nicotine i was i was thinking wow this is going to be a really strong tobacco it is not i mean it may be in the nicotine sense but in mm -hmm. terms of the flavors you're getting out of it it's just a lot of different flavors out mm -hmm. of this uh, and like I, said, like I said before, it's very, very well balanced, but um, the sweetness is actually kind of surprising to me. Mm. I know it's got some Latakia, I'm sorry, uh, Virginia's and, mm -hmm. and Cavendish, but uh, to me, the, the sweetness is actually a little bit more pronounced than I would have thought. Mm. Really, really good. Scott, this is your first time with this tobacco. What do you, what yeah. do you think? Wonderful flavor. I, I, you know, I'm not a aficionado of pipe tobacco yet. Yeah. Um, I uh, really enjoy it. I do get a lot of the sweetness mm. out of it right off the bat. Um, I do have some earthy flavor. Mm. I'm getting some earthy flavor to it, but it's super smooth. I wouldn't call this a strong tobacco either. Um, very nice. Really enjoying it. Dave, yeah. you got the big church warden going mm. there. What's uh, what's your take on the tobacco here? Well, the uh, the church warden is doing a great job of pulling down the smoke. And that's letting it, uh, letting the earthiness and the spice, uh, 
then I'm getting um, amp up a notch with the coffee. Um, I feel like the I'm getting the for me the earthy and the and the sweetness have kind of like leveled off whether the same level because of the coffee or probably because of the the church warden um, or before it would be more like more sweeter than I as I remember it. So yeah, it's going really well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there's some nice smoky mesquite-like notes with this. Yeah. Uh, I can really pick up the fruitiness of the Virginias. Yeah. Um, the Cavendish in here just adds this nice, sweet, smooth, creamy background yeah. to everything, and I think really kind of pulls everything together. It almost works kind of like a roux, you know, and mm-hmm. and uh, just smooths everything out, and it's very well balanced. Um, you know the strength of this tobacco, as far as nicotine goes, it's it's pretty high, but I'd say you know body wise, medium maybe medium yeah. plus yeah. as the bowl gets on, we might think it's more medium plus, yeah. but uh, it is a wonderful tobacco and and um, um, it goes fantastic with coffee. English blends as a whole go great with coffee, and um, again I think the. The black coffee. I think if you had cream in the coffee, I almost think that would kind of clash. Mm-hmm. Um, but the black coffee here works really, really well with mm. these tastes and flavors. And didn't you didn't you stumble upon this due to a review? I did. I I uh, was was uh, kind of on the. I'm always on the hunt for new stuff to bring into the store, and um, I, our distributor, you know, carries. Um, hermit tobacco and captain earl's blends and so i i I had not heard of them before so i was looking into them and went to tobaccoreviews.com and the very first review that's on there about this tobacco is hilarious it's epic you need to go and read it just go to tobaccoreviews.com look up 10 russians and read the first review Mm -hmm. and after i finished it I said, I have to order a tin of that for myself. And so I, I, we didn't even carry it. So I ordered it from, you know, um, uh, uh, online and liked it so much. Uh, you know, we have a lot of English uh, uh, aficionados at the store. I said, this, this is going to be a great addition to the store. Yeah. Brought it in. We've already sold out of it. Uh, we've put in a, another order of uh, for 10 Russians. We'll probably be bringing in some other... Um, blends from the Cat Benaro line as well. Mm. But uh, a really, really great tobacco here. And if you like a full Latakia blend, this is something that uh, I'd really recommend. Yeah. Yeah, you sent me a, a link to the review right after you bought it, I think. And then I, I just read it. And as soon as I read it, I just bought it. I, I didn't need to think anymore. It was just, <laughs> it had to be. I had to have it. I had to have I had to have I had to have my own opinion on it. <laughs> mm. Now, let's get to what everybody has been waiting for, and that is talking about Trial 4. Trial 4, for those of you people who, you know, haven't heard yet, is a documentary that is on Netflix, and um, Scott is in that documentary and plays a key role in that whole documentary at least as far as i'm concerned so what's trial four about especially for those people out there who have not yet watched it and how did you get involved with that documentary so uh trial four is about the uh, uh 
a new trial that w was uh, gained by us getting him out of prison after 22 mm -hmm. years. And it was a homicide. Uh, our, our client was convicted of uh, uh, killing a Boston police officer, detective in, in Boston, when he was doing an overnight detail. And um, so trial four is about the preparation. So he... He had two cases that were uh, in, uh, ended in hung juries. Mm -hmm. The third time they convicted him. So we we're have, talking about Sean Ellis. Sean Ellis. I'm yep. sorry, did I not mention that? Um, yeah, Sean Ellis, the defendant. And mm -hmm. after uh, getting him out of prison, now we're preparing for his fourth trial. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's what the case is about. It goes through from the start of the homicide and. And some of the investigation that was done by the Boston police and mm -hmm. um, it builds up. They show some of the uh, investigation that they did. And then leading up to the part that I'm involved in, meeting with the attorneys, and, mm -hmm. and then what I actually, one of the things that I did on the case, locating a, a key witness and didn't know about it at the time. I don't want to jump ahead mm. of your questioning, but. Um, and then it's all prep preparing for trial number four. Okay. So do you think they did a fair job in this of presenting the facts or was it really kind of slanted for the defense? Like, like, you know, trying to, you know, yeah. really present one side or yeah, do you no. think they did a good job oh, they, with, with presenting things? No, they did a great job. They, uh, so it, it being a documentary, um, they have to be uh, unbiased, so mm -hmm. they talk, try to talk to both sides, which they did. Yep. They were able to talk to at least a couple of police officers, and if you look at the credits, after each episode, there's a whole list of all these people. It's probably, I, I'd never counted, but three, three or four columns of about maybe 10 or 15 in each column of mm. the people that would not talk to them really? about this case. Yeah. Um, a lot of police officers were uh, took the Fifth Amendment. They didn't want to testify. Um, two of the police officers were, were convicted of um, wrongdoing, <laughs> to say the least, um, and spent jail time in federal prison. Um, but they they no they they wanted to hear everything from both sides. They never told me what they were doing. Mm -hmm. They just said that they were interviewing. You know trying to interview police officers, other witnesses. They were doing their own investigation okay. within this documentary. And so you asked, did ask, how how did I become yeah. involved? Well, one, the attorney, Rosemary Scapiccio, is a fabulous attorney, and I did all her criminal defense work, um, uh, suggested. They, they went to her and said, we'd like to make a documentary about this case. Mm -hmm. And she got the permission from Sean Ellis to go ahead and, go ahead with the film and um and she said to the production crew and to the director said you, you need to speak to scott keller about this so i got a phone call and one day they came up to my home and i sat with them probably for four hours three and a half four hours when they left the jaws were on the floor they couldn't believe what i had dug up and mm. and um they, they asked me if they mind if i minded them coming back with a film crew 
Like, and you Whoa. said, oh, sure. Uh, how about next well, Thursday I, from 9 to 10.15? <laughs> well, you know, I remember I said I, I retired because I really needed to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was a little bit skeptical about getting back into, you know, reopening um, things from the past. But mm-hmm. um, so I ended up meeting with them on four or five, at least four or five different occasions at different locations and um you know and then you know they they were re- recording me all the time sure and uh questioning me about different things that i had done and and something that you will see some of it on episode six and seven right and and so you know i'm not in full transparency a documentary guy i i, I that's just not my bag but I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, and you did a good job. not just because you, you were in it, mm-hmm. you know, Scott's a friend of mine and has been for years, but uh, it was just really well done. It was very, very interesting. And um, but when we got to where you were involved, it was like, Scott blew this whole thing wide open. <laughs> this is the, the whole reason this guy is out is because of Scott. You want to talk a little bit about... <laughs> What it was that you found that yeah. that helped kind of yeah turn the tables on yeah, this well, investigation? Well, this is a spoiler alert for anybody that mm-hmm. hasn't seen been it. out for a while. <laughs> if they haven't yet. seen it yet, <laughs> yeah. you're you should be yeah. ashamed of yourself. And then after you listen to this, go back and watch. Yeah. So um, uh, I was working on it. this case. Uh, the Sean Ellis case came from uh, September 1993, mm. and I was working on another case for that. Ironically, um, for the attorneys that represented Sean Ellis in his first uh, three trials, mm-hmm. I was working on another homicide case from the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Okay. In the same group of Boston police and detectives were involved in that case. So they asked me to go out and interview this woman by the name of Misty, Michelle Misty Hager. Mm-hmm. Misty was her nickname. And so I was questioning her about that other homicide case where Detective Mulligan, the victim in Sean Ellis' case, um, was a witness in that particular Mm. case. So I just kind of off the cuff said, what can you tell me about Detective Mulligan? Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, that piece of crap. And I said, well, what do you mean? So she went on and told me. She said they thought I was a... Uh, a, a possible suspect in the case. I said, really? She said, yeah, they came to me that night and said that was the last phone call that Detective Mulligan w- made was to her. Mm. And I'm like, whoa, holy cow. Because I had seen all the discovery material, boxes mm-hmm. and boxes and boxes of it, and nowhere in there were there any statements that they had spoken to Misty Hager. Mm. So she went on to tell me that... Um, she was interviewed at least uh, two, three, if not more times, down at police, Boston Police Headquarters. They not only interviewed her, they videotaped her and audio taped her, and we didn't have any of that. Mm. And um, I knew right then that, wow, this is a bombshell. Mm. I'll never forget that day. It's like, wow, I can't wait to contact Rosemary. And um, they just fit in with all the police corruption that we're 
already building mm -hmm. a case on and this just fit right in there it's no wonder um you know they uh, uh lost my train of thought well, there were you ever able to to find the the video of the of the um interviews they interviews? did with her no, no they didn't nope. they never turned any of that over really um no it was nothing not one shred of evidence. We knew nothing about Misty Hager hmm. until I happened to go there and interview her on this other case. So this was an evidence of, of the police just totally blacking that out yeah. because it did not go with exactly. the story they were trying to put out. Right. And what, what's really uh, funny about this case is, so the phone call is very important, especially mm -hmm. back then, cell phones were new mm -hmm. and... Um, you know, your, your phone would keep all the records. Your your phone itself would keep records of all the calls that you made. Right. And I don't know if I should jump ahead and talk Go about ahead. that. Yeah. Um, so the phone was very important to us, right? So they, after Mulligan was shot, they uh, took the car back and pounded it. Well, it was a, a Chevy Blazer. They took it back to the wherever the the impound lot was, and they went through it with a fine tooth comb, mm. forensics, and all the best detectives and whatever. They went through the car. They pulled the seats out. They did an incredible job detailing, like a hairpin, a screw, and uh, the smallest of objects. But they overlooked the phone. Mm. They didn't find the phone. And then Kenny Acera, one of the uh, police uh, officers, not a homicide detective, but a drug cop, mm -hmm. who was in cahoots with Mulligan and a couple other detect, uh, a couple other Boston cops. Kenny Acera, um, like, I'm not sure if it was a week, two weeks after they, uh, you know, searched the car, he went back and said, hmm, I'm going to check inside the compartment. And inside the compartment was the cell phone. Huh. So they went through the whole car and didn't find a cell phone. So they, they took the phone, and they looked at it, and it was wiped clean. There was no record of any phone calls made. So I <laughs> wonder why that happened, because that would have shown what they were up to. Mm -hmm. And if you when you watch the program, you'll see a lot of the things that they were up to, and they wanted to hide that. And they certainly didn't want uh, a phone call in there to, to Misty Hager mm. because she, at the time, was cooking um, cocaine and mm. and uh, making crack and selling it, and and she was one of her, she was one of his uh, girlfriends that he used to uh, mess around with, and he would pay her. F um, um, she would get her money or drugs from him, mm -hmm. and 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 and. Uh, and return for having oral sex with him. Jeez. Yeah. And she told me on that on that night, she got the phone call that Mulligan wanted to come down, and she said, "I can't. I'm 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 cooking," which meant she was cooking crack. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so she said, "I'll send Bunny down." Bunny was another um, another woman that lived in the, in the Beachland projects there, mm -hmm. and uh, who had serviced Mulligan before. She said, "I'll send Bunny down." He said, okay. So uh, Michelle told me that um, upon 
uh, money returning. She was all out of breath. She says, what's going on? What's going on? She said, I went down there with Mr. C, and Mr. C blew his head off. Well, shot him, killed him. She was completely dumbfounded. Mm. So was I when she told me all this. So again, not one police report. And she said she had told everything she told me to the Boston police many years before, 1993. What was the purpose of trying to pin this on Sean? Well, at the outset, um, they thought that the shooter was inside the car. The passenger side, mm -hmm. and um, they couldn't. They they were investigating. They didn't come up with anything. I think it was within a couple of weeks. Um, Detective Brazel, um, who was one of the disgraced Boston police officers that turned state's evidence against the other cops, mm -hmm. um, was interviewing about Sean's cousin that was uh, murdered. Mm -hmm. Cousins that were murdered yep. in an apartment. And and they asked him about uh, what what he knew about the Mulligan murder. He said, I don't know anything about the Mulligan murder, but I was at that Walgreens that night buying diapers mm. for my cousin. And from that point on, ah, they've got a they've got a subject or a suspect, and they all their focus went on to him. So was so they, he a patsy from the beginning, or not? Well, a couple of weeks in. And and that's when they started trying to build a case around him to and, protect and, to protect Mulligan to protect to protect Mulligan and and Kenny Acera and Walter Robinson and Brazel these mm. three cops that are all have been disgraced spent time in prison Brazel would have gone to prison but he made a deal to testify against the others mm. so um, yeah it was. Uh, so they, they started building the case against them. Wow. Yeah. That is crazy thinking yeah. about all that stuff. Yeah. Now, what was it? What was it? Obviously, you know, you interview, you interview her in the documentary. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there was not a camera crew going with you back when that happened. Right. So what, right. what was it like recreating this stuff with yeah. her? So this was the third time. Um, I, I spoke to her twice before at the same residence, but... Mm -hmm. When, it, when the film crew was with me, we went to another address first because I thought she had moved, but she hadn't. Mm -hmm. um, but going up, uh, you know, with the film crew, I was like, oh, I don't know if she's going to let us in. Mm -hmm. um, but she was very, uh, very willing and, and invited us in. And uh, we sat down with two cameras behind me, a director, a producer, two or three sound people, all in a small little kitchen. Mm. It was really, uh, and she opened up just like she did uh, uh, the two other times prior to me. Uh, so was it very much like that? Was that interview very much like the first the first time you oh, talked to her? Identical, identical, we, identical we, story. Yeah, in the in the in the show, you'll see about ten or fifteen, ten minutes maybe mm -hmm. worth of uh, the actual interview. But mm. we were there probably for three hours, mm. and uh, yeah. So. Now, how long ago was the original interview that you did with her? 2012. 2012. So yeah. here, you know, that was this was taped in, in 2020, right? Or was it 2019? Well, it aired in 2020, but um, I believe we interviewed her in 2019. Okay, so, so 
you know, six, seven years. Six or seven years have gone by. Had gone by. And what does that tell you that her story really had not at all changed exactly, to you? Right. In, in that amount of time. Right. When people are lying, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to remember exactly what you said. And I had copious notes. Mm-hmm. And everything she said was identical. Wow. All three times. And so the first time I interviewed her, it was like, wow, this is unbelievable. Go back with a witness. So I took one of my employees back with me, and she said the exact same story. He took his notes. I took mine um, again. And um, and then I just, you know, went off my notes when I re-interviewed her mm-hmm. for the third time with the camera crew. And uh, it was, you know, spot on exactly what she had said. That's, a, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um what are you most proud of about that series, about being involved with that documentary? Being in the courtroom when he was released, mm. you know, to prepare for another trial. That was um, it's like, wow, all this hard work really paid off. Mm-hmm. The judge really listened to us. A lot of times you have an uphill battle for someone that's been tried, you know. Three and times. Three times and convicted once and spent so much time in prison you you have an uphill battle yeah it was almost 22 years right yeah almost 22 years yes but you know the 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 work the uh, rosemary scapiccio did was incredible and um and she was glad to have me uh you know working on the case because that that helped uh seal Seal the it was corruption. a silver bullet to the yeah, whole yeah, thing. Yeah. I mean, for Pete's sake, it just—it yeah. it was amazing. Just, yeah. I mean, they were building. I mean, obviously, they had, the, you know, there was. You could, you know, you're building up. You're seeing the corruption of the cops. Mm-hmm. You're seeing you're, all of the suspicion. Mm-hmm. But then you come along with and with that interview with her. Yeah. Show everything, you know. To be to be completely opposite of what the cops were saying. Right. And you know, during the um, during the uh, series, mm-hmm. you know, you have these Boston police uh, head of homicide saying, "Oh, this was a clean investigation, and you know, this is this couldn't have gone any yeah. better." It's just, uh, you know, that was the documentary showing the mm-hmm. other side what these guys were saying. But as you follow along, it's like this, you know, what about this? Yeah. What about that? You know, and uh, now here, here's a question for you. You know, after watching that documentary. You know, and and you asserted what what my feeling was was that it was a real good presentation of the facts. Mm-hmm. It seems so freaking obvious that this guy was set up mm-hmm. in the end and made a patsy for this. Why is there even another trial? I mean, why isn't everything being thrown out? Well, they typically don't like to just dismiss a case and admit that they're it's it's ultimately up to the prosecutor's office to mm-hmm. to do that and if they did that then they'd open themselves wide open to a civil suit mm-hmm. so that's why it wasn't completely thrown out okay they just decided not to prosecute them again so but you know there's still a chance that you know there might be a civil suit going and mm-hmm. I don't know that yet Anyway, I'm sure I will if they ever decide to to sue. Right. Yeah. Um, are you going to be involved? Do you think in future documentaries after this? I don't know. 
is like you know like i've mentioned a couple couple of those cases that i've been involved in i haven't been approached by anybody but you know would i again yeah i probably would mm -hmm. if i can you know help tell the story of uh, a true crime story you've got a lot yeah i do have you a lot, do have yeah. a lot um <laughs> sticks sticks for chicks has a question for you she says yeah. doesn't sean uh, still have some gun charge against him in, in spite of being cleared of uh, Yes, this? he does, yeah. He still, he was um, also convicted of um, the, the gun charge uh, of Mulligan's gun and the murder weapon. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much under review right now, from what I understand, through the district attorney's office in Boston, that they're looking into that and um, whether that was all, um, you know, uh, above board let's say so one of one of the things that if i could mention quickly about mm -hmm. the guns yep since uh the question was brought up brazel who is the boston cop that said his uncle sean's uncle told him that the guns were buried across the street from where sean was living and so they sent the whole crew out there and they're searching this whole area and they find them on top of the ground not buried, but on top of the ground. Now, what kind of person would do that if they have the murder weapon in the Boston, the dead cop's gun, just throw them on top of the ground? Not buried like Brazel said his uncle told him. Right. And now, don't forget now, Brazel's the one that was disgraced and turned right. state's evidence because he knew he was screwed. Mm -hmm. um, so that may be under investigation. I don't, you know, obviously that's secret. I don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. If the, if those cases get, if those go away and he's not found, um, you know, guilty of that, mm -hmm. and they they dismiss that, then that'll open it up. I imagine for a civil suit. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, what are what's the what what are the biggest differences between Hollywood's depiction? of private investigators and a real-life private yeah. investigator. Uh, I didn't drive around in a Corvette or a Ferrari. Or... <laughs> <laughs> but you could have. Yeah. You could have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> maybe. Maybe not. I drove around in my Honda around Dorchester, Roxbury, I wouldn't Mattapan. For... At that time, down in Roxbury in a yeah. Corvette or something. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> or a Ferrari. But... Um, uh, so, you know, they, they make it seem glorious and all, mm. and the reality is you, you're working on the dark side mm. constantly, day in and day out, and you're seeing um, some of the, the, you know, some of the worst criminals, mm -hmm. some that aren't so bad, some that are innocent, um, but there, it, it, there's no limelight. It's not, uh, it's, you know, my oldest boy talked about he wanted to get into it, and I said, no, no. So you actually discouraged your kids from following. I your did. Footsteps. Well, my youngest had no desire, but my oldest did mm -hmm. because he saw a lot of the good work that I had done. Mm -hmm. You know, I worked on 164 homicide cases, which is, which is a lot, um, <laughs> and had a lot of good outcomes. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, not only uh, we, we didn't get them out of prison per se, but you know, uh, sometimes we got not guilties. Other other times we had cases knocked down from first degree murder to homicide mm -hmm. which is a lot lesser sentence and showing that 
you know, this was wrong. It could be somebody else. Yep. Um, yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of hard work, a lot of hard work, you know, I don't want to say crime, all the crime happens in these bad areas because there is crime that happens in every oh, city, yeah. every town. Yep. But most of it, you know, was in the city. That's where the uh, most of the homicides were when I worked there anyway. Well, that's what, you know, the, at least Hollywood has that right. I mean, all the, what homicide city, what homicide TV show has the guys actually working in the suburbs? Right. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're all in the yeah, cities, you right, know. Yeah. Um, where do you have like favorite TV PI shows? No, I can't stand them. You can't stand them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can ask my wife. She uh, she likes watching some of them, and mm -hmm. and, and and some of the uh, like LA Law, those those mm -hmm. types of shows, and I just pick them apart, mm -hmm. you know. And I, and and she doesn't like it when I do that because I'm ruining it. <laughs> Ruined yeah, it for yeah, them. yeah. <laughs> but you know that they can't do that. They can't do this in court. That would never be allowed. <laughs> that mm -hmm. sort of thing. So mm -hmm. no. Um, but the you know a lot of people ask me you know what you know what what type of show are you you know are you like uh, PI Ma Magnum PI? No, no. Simon the, and the, Simon. The <laughs> yeah. <sorry laughs> the, the, cl the closest I I can. Um, Sherlock. No. Yeah, sure. The closest that uh, that I could equate to what I did was the Perry Mason show, Paul Drake. Okay. Investigator yep. for yep. Paul Drake. And, uh, you know, a lot of times, yeah, I'd be coming into court while it's in trial, you know, because the investigation doesn't stop. Just right. because a trial stops, sometimes it's mm -hmm. last minute things. Mm -hmm. Breaking into the courtroom, mm -hmm. handing a note to the court officer to bring to the to the attorney. Uh, you know, that it was a lot of that with Paul Drake and Perry Mason. Right, right, right. So, yeah. So, Paul yeah. Drake, huh? Yeah, you're, you're like the Paul Drake. Paul Drake, yeah. call you Drake. I'm gray now too, so just like him. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Now uh, a little bit of change in the subject here. We have a segment on the show we like to call, you know, is Paul just blowing smoke? But Paul is Paul did the TU word of the day. Yes. And so Dave is actually going to do, is Dave just blowing smoke? And this is he's going to ask us something. And we have to determine, Scott mm -hmm. Cubes, yeah. <laughs> whether Dave is blowing smoke or he's not blowing smoke, telling the truth. Okay. So this is a true or false kind of thing, which is very good for, you know, you private investigator types. Mm. You know, you have to determine whether Dave is fibbing. And so I'm very interested to see mm -hmm. how this works. I got to start watching his eyes and his hands. Mm-hmm. They're always they're always moving. They're always moving. Yeah. Mm. Yep. For a sign he's of a, a very, liar. He's a very <laughs> 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 So Dave, uh, what is what is your uh what is it for tonight? So mm -hmm. is there a zone? Is there a zone? That's in the United too, States that's too vague. Where uh it is uh, you could murder someone and get away with it legally. Like there's a zone, like there's a space that there's no law. In the United States? In the United States. Anywhere. Yeah. Is there a place? I'm, in the... uh, so I'm, I'm going to say, you know, I'm saying... 
there is a place in the United States where you can murder somebody. And get away with it. Am I blowing smoke or am I not? From what I know, I'm going to say you're blowing smoke. I'm going to piggyback that. I would probably venture to think that way, but I'm going to say you're not blowing smoke. I think you have something up your sleeve, Dave. Paul, you would be correct. <laughs> so, in Yellowstone National Park, there is a 50-square-mile selection in Yellowstone National Park where one can get away with murder and other crimes. Brian Colt, a Michigan State University law professor, discovered a loophole in 2005 while researching jurisdictions for this article. Yellowstone National Park, like all U.S. national parks, is federal land. And if a person commits a crime there, it falls within federal jurisdiction. Under the Sixth Amendment, a person accused of a crime has a right to a jury trial. The panel must consist of residents from the state and federal district where the purported crime occurred. So how does this murder zone come into play? There is a stretch of 50 miles within the yellow zone that crosses parts of Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana. If someone were to commit murder on this piece of land, the crime would take place in the state of Idaho, but under Wyoming's discretion, this portion of Yellowstone is unpopulated, with no potential jury members living in the area. Therefore, no jury trial can take place. <laughs> wow. Really? Very Once Colt had made the discovery, he sent copies of his research to the lawmakers with suggestions on how to fix this issue. His efforts, however, proved fruitless. So this area of Yellowstone National Park remains a murder zone. Wow. Really? Very enlightening. But since nobody lives there, it's unlikely that it's ever going to happen. Well, how do you? Can, can you? Can you... <laughs> You don't have to live there. You could just literally go there and do the deed, and then you're home free. Well, I mean, if people actually know about this place, and if Dave knows about it, other criminals have to know about it. Yeah, but is, is, it, know, is, is it is it is it is it a part is it part of the park that you can actually get to? I mean, is it? Well, it doesn't say that. It just says that the guy did it to geography. And it was like, wow. So what's what's what did you read from there? Like you should. I just want. I just want it. You the, know the onion, <laughs> the Babylon, the Babylon Bee. I mean, come on, where where are you getting this? Um, this was. Let's see. I just I I don't know. You I don't I, know I, where you got it from. <laughs> Blowing well, smoke. Well, I just copied. It. <laughs> what, what you what you saw I, these? I copied the paste and sent it to my email. So I don't know, but I I googled weird facts, that weird crime facts, and that's what came up. So oh. that was one of them. They could always blame it on a bear, too. So, yeah. Great so, defense. So, Dave, why don't you try That's that? That's unbearable. Dave, why don't you try it, okay? Try it. Just try it. Do the what deed. What are you doing this weekend, Do the deed. Ball? Do the deed and see if you get caught, all right? Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too nice of a guy for some shady crap like that. I know you are, Dave. You're too nice. Yeah. Interesting, though. Isn't yeah, it? that is very interesting. I, I wonder whether or not that actually would hold water if somebody actually, <laughs> you know. But it is. That's interesting. Uh, are you ready for a little would you rather? Mm -hmm. No, a little would you rather. Would you rather? Yeah. <laughs> um, here's the question. This is a would you rather, so everybody gets to answer this. And um, No. Uh, Dave, we're going to start with you. <laughs> 
Would you rather mm. be in a true crime documentary <laughs> or be a character on a new season of BBC's Sherlock? Oh, definitely the BBC's Sherlock. Yeah, I don't want to deal with any real drama like that. <laughs> I'll, I'll take the fiction, thank you. <laughs> Can you repeat that again? And, and Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, yeah. I, Cumberpatch. Cumber, Cumberpatch, not mm-hmm. Batch. It's Cumberbatch. Cumberpatch. Batch. 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 B. There's B, mm-hmm. not a P. Cumberpatch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Scott, what about, what about you? Have you ever seen Sherlock? The BBC, baby. I have not. Oh! It's... I know you hate these shows. You would like So this. I know yeah, you're not going to ever would, watch it. Yeah. But like it. it's... The way they did it is they, they took those classic stories mm-hmm. and put them into modern situations. Oh, yeah. So it's not yeah. like they came up with some kind of new story that, but they, so if, if we were going to tell this novel in today's time, how would it look? I see. And they did a yeah, great yeah, job yeah, with yeah, it. They did yeah. it. They did a really good job. Yeah. Instead of like him being addicted to, uh, with opium, mm-hmm. uh, he was, uh, nicotine. And so he always had like uh, nicotine patches on and stuff because yeah. you can't smoke there. Yep. Yeah. It, was, it was just really cleverly done. You have three nicotine patches? That's it because is, this is a three nicotine patch problem. problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I uh, I would stick with the documentary. Because, yeah. You know, that's what I, uh, that's what I did. And, you know, during the filming of Trial 4, I had to have to act. But mm-hmm. we recreated the crime scene and, uh, and the beginning of trial. I mean, episode seven, mm-hmm. and it was many takes because uh, you have to. They wanted me to do certain things, and right. trying to do that was like take another take, another take, another take, and that gets old really quick. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I, you know, it was, it was much more comfortable interviewing a witness and and telling uh, you know things about what I part of the investigation that i did and you know just it's more me i'm not at all surprised yeah i'm not at all surprised <laughs> that's what you said oh what about you can you repeat it one more time the please? question is would you rather be in a true crime documentary mm-hmm. or be a character on a new season of bbc's sherlock i would rather be in a documentary oh a documentary man. yeah i like documentaries I you really like do. documentaries i do i like documentaries yep. a lot I, I tend to watch more documentaries on netflix than any other uh type of, type show. of shows yeah mm-hmm. yeah I, I think they're fascinating mm. yeah i like i did like trial four i liked a few other ones i'm watching one right now called the cecil hotel mm. A hotel Caesar, uh, Cecil, excuse me. And, yeah, uh, I just watched Cecil. Cecil. Yep, and, uh, that, that's pretty cool. I it actually that. is. Yeah, my girlfriend got me hooked on on that, and just about finished with it. So. I'll have to put that on my phone so I yeah. don't forget. I knew nothing. I knew nothing of the subject Neither matter at all, but it uh, was kind of interesting. Yeah, mm. really, really interesting. That's funny because, see, the whole reason why I wouldn't do the documentary is because that means I would have actually had to have lived through it and been there. Mm-hmm. I don't want that negativity in my life. You've already lived <laughs> through so much, though, Dave. I mean, yeah. how many crimes have you been involved with? <laughs> Thousands. I mean, I the documentaries could be, they could go forever. However, there is a documentary on... A documentary? A documentary on Netflix <laughs> about uh, a crack house in the 90s, and I lived there. 
but it was see this is exactly what i'm talking about <laughs> how did they miss you because uh, i was pre <laughs> i was pre cracked house twin zone tobacconist and producer of not just blowing smoke was in the crack house here's what he had to say <laughs> i don't remember anything <laughs> i was busy with my nintendo 64 so i gotta mention something about the documentary the filming of it it just it, it, it you you see a documentary and yep. you just think it's like the the folks that are that are um in it mm -hmm. but the work that goes behind the scenes mm -hmm. is absolutely incredible it takes years and years i think they were been work we're working on trial four for at least yeah. five years and mm. and if you go to the end of one of the episodes um instead of continuing to the next episode look at all the credits mm -hmm. and you'll see all the people and i've met and spoke to probably about 15 different people at least um different uh producers uh research people uh, uh you know you have the director you know um cameramen sound people you know when when they were interviewing me one-on-one -on -one, you would think it's one-on-one -on -one, but there was the director a producer two cam at least two cameramen if not three um sound people uh probably three at every at every time three different sound people mm -hmm. um and that was just that was just me not to mention all the other people that they interviewed and, and try to locate and it's just it, it's a huge huge production yeah and it's i had no idea they had spent so much time putting it together yeah yeah right and you know and after they finished you know wrapping up with me with the filming um you know, I was very anxious for it to come out. You know, it took it like an, a, a, the editing was probably a, a over about a year. year. Yeah. yeah, it was about a yeah. year. Yeah, which is you know really difficult. So you got all the editing people, and you know. Well, Scott, thank you so much for being with us tonight. You're welcome. It's My a pleasure. Great honor to have you on the show, mm -hmm. Cubes. It's an honor to be here. How, how did you get that nickname, Cubes? Uh, well, back in uh, high school. <laughs> you want me to tell? Back it? In yeah. when the earth was cooling. Back at back in high school, uh, I played soccer, and I had this uncanny uncanny ability of getting hit in the groin. <laughs> and, an um, ability that was an ability. Oh, I poor choice of words. An inevitability. Thank you. Your wordsmith, you. Mm. And um, <laughs> this, how it happened. Oh. So, well, well, I'll end with this. My, I was playing JV soccer in tenth grade, mm -hmm. and um, I was very good at heading the ball and scoring goals. And this one other guy. Uh, hit the corner kick and I, I, I had a goal off my head and second one I jumped too early and it came down and it hit me in the groin mm. and it went in the net <laughs> and the headline of the Andover Townsman was Kel uh, Andover JV beats Chelmsford on Keller's two heads <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's when a buddy of mine coined the phrase Keller Cubes. <laughs> wow. Uh, sorry about that, ladies. No, that's all right. And do you think you might uh, want to come back and be on the show sometime? Absolutely. Sure. We'd love to have you back. Yeah. Hopefully some people have some questions. and.
be happy to answer them. That would be awesome. Yeah. Now, next week, we have another great show for you. Next week, the cigar boss lady herself, Ada Rittnery, is going to be back with us on the show. Yay. She is a very passionate Dominican woman who loves her cigars. And we are going to be smoking the Oscar Leaf Connecticut Toro and GLP's The Virginia Cream mm. with her. And that is going to be a great, great show. You're not going to want to miss that. Next Monday night, right here on YouTube at 8 o'clock. Put it on your calendars, people. Thanks for being with us tonight. Thank you, Scott, for being Welcome. with us. Yeah, thanks, Scotty. Sure and uh, this was a great episode, and uh, we hope to see everybody here again next week. And that, my friends, is not just blowing smoke. Ciao. You've been listening to Not Just Blowing Smoke, the podcast that brings the wealth of knowledge, expertise, and fun of Twins Smoke Shop, New England's premier smoke shop, right to you, wherever you are, whenever you want it. You can find us at our website, notjustblowingsmoke.com, and keep in touch with us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at Not Just Blowing Smoke. Thanks for listening, everybody. And that is Not Just Blowing Smoke. Rolling with the top down, smoke.